This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 5th of March 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up, we'll be crossing over to Ukraine to check in with the latest developments overnight. We'll speak to Andrei Kirkov, one of the foremost contemporary authors in the country, whose novel Grey Bees explores the conflict in the Donbass region. We'll also hear from Monocle's editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. We must be very wary of some of the rhetoric being bandied about regarding Russia. The push to isolate the country should not be used to demonise all Russians and its culture. And we'll check in with the international coverage on the conflict with Russia expert Charles Hecker. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. Russia's military will observe a ceasefire in two areas of Ukraine to allow civilians to evacuate, according to Russian state media. The countries agreed on evacuation routes with Ukrainian forces to allow civilians to leave the strategic port of Mariupol in the southeast and the eastern town of Volnovaka. There was no immediate confirmation from Ukrainian forces and it's not clear how long the evacuation routes will remain open. Russia's blocked Facebook and some other websites and passed a law that gives Moscow much stronger powers to crack down on independent journalism, prompting the BBC, Bloomberg and other foreign media to suspend reporting in the country. And a slew of major Western brands in a broad range of industries has exited from Russia. Some of the best known have sharply rebuked Moscow for the attack on Ukraine. Others have described reacting to circumstances, including luxury goods maker LVMH, which on Friday said it would temporarily shut 124 shops in Russia. Canadian Tyre also announced it would temporarily close 41 Russian stores of its Heli Hansen outerwear and luggage group and private jet maker Bombardier says it's suspended all activities with Russian clients adhering to international laws. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, we begin with the latest from Ukraine. Anastasia Halushka is a governance specialist and an expert in foreign policy and international law at the International Centre for Policy Studies in Kiev. She's on the line now. Anastasia, what's happened in the country over the past 24 hours? It's become, uh, it's quite chaotic. Uh, the info on Zaporizhia power plant, for example, is going back and forth. We're not sure who has full control over it right now. It seems like it's still kind of uh, up in the air um, in uh, the regions around Kiev. We have, we see increasing aggression. Uh, there's talk about explosions. I myself am at one of those sites right now where it has happened. Uh, we see that despite initial reports that the Russians were going to at least discuss or consider a ceasefire temporarily, especially with regards to the Mariupol Green Corridor, that it is not uh, that when we talk to people in Mariupol, we see that they're also not quite sure what is happening or whether that human, humanitarian corridor is even going to be taking place. Although I think half an hour ago, I got a, I got a confirmation that it will be happening, but there is a lot of tension I can tell you there's a lot of stress here. People everywhere are just on edge. 
um, waiting for the bombs to hit their own houses. And we see like where I am right now. I don't want to disclose too much info, but there were the, the rocket strike. Uh, there was a rocket strike in a civilian area. Nothing remotely military inside. Um, it's it's gone to it's it's quite harrowing to see. I'm sure. And are people taking a shelter underground? Yes, they are. But you have to understand that um, these air raids are and they 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 they're calling out like multiple times during the day or night. It's, it's extremely stressful, and people are hiding out in bomb shelters. At a certain point, you get desynthesized. Though, if you've done it like 20 times and nothing hits, you're going to become desynthesized. We also see that airstrikes are taking place without the wailing of uh, like the, uh, the couple of times that bombs have hit here have been happening without the wailing of air sirens. So people were absolutely not prepared. Nobody started coming. Um, so it's a, it's a very tense kind of environment. And are, are you making plans to leave? No, not, not for now. If anything, if I want to be safer, I'll go to the West, I'll go to Lviv. The West is actually very calm and quiet. You would think that there's, aside from the, aside from the blog posts, aside from the checkpoints, you would almost say there's nothing happening there. And how much information are you able to, to get and how reliable is that information? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm here uh, with regards to what exactly, sorry? Uh, just the, the general situation in, in the country. Uh, the, you have to know, you have to understand, this is an informational warfare. So information that we are getting, even when we think it's first source, first hand, is also not always reliable. I've noticed multiple times that people will omit the amount of victims, omit the amount of deaths in, bomb, in our bombings. Uh, because they don't want to spread the message out there uh, how many how many people actually have died, which I understand, of course, because you don't want to demoralize your country um, or demotivate uh, or focus on on the on the on the horrific horrific deaths that are happening. Uh, the but the, this is really the first time I've seen informational warfare take place at such a large scale. Telegram channels are flooded. If I don't check my Telegram for uh, my Telegram news channels for like an hour. I have thousand missed messages and updates of what has happened where, of which bombs or air raid sirens are going off, of which single uh, Russian soldier has been has been captured or not captured or Ukrainian. It has gone. Um, there's an overflow of information that is actually adding as well, maybe even refueling the anxiety, but it's also necessary to keep people safe. Anastasia, I know that you don't have a great deal of time. We're, we're going to let you go now. Please keep safe and thank you so much for talking to us. OK, of course. Thank you. Bye. That's Anastasia Halushka, uh, who was speaking to us from somewhere near Kiev. Understandably, she doesn't want to tell us exactly where she is at the moment. Uh, we were hoping to bring you a conversation now with Andrei Kirkov. He's one of Ukraine's most successful literary export, uh, experts. Exports. <laughs> uh, but um, right now, we're not able to get hold of him, although I see from his Twitter feed that he is extremely busy this morning. We will bring you that conversation if we're able to. But crossing back to the studio now, and uh, here with me is Charles Hecker, who's senior partner at Control Risks. Now, Charles, you were formerly with the Moscow Times, uh, and that is a newspaper, despite all of these new regulations that Russia's brought in, that is still actually operational. That's right. I'm quite proud to see the Moscow Times doing very, very well on the internet and publishing a lot of information that is still accessible to the West. And you heard Anastasia in, in her report from Ukraine describe her reliance on Telegram 
which is a messaging service, and that's a lot of way that's a way that a lot of people around the world, but particularly in Russia and right now in the conflict zone, uh, are getting their news, and and that will become an increasingly important channel for understanding what's happening on the ground. Because what the what the Moscow Times has on its website today, um, the Moscow Times is public is published electronically only. Um, but the headline says Putin signs law introducing jail terms for fake news on army. And this is referring to a law that was adopted yesterday in the Russian legislature and signed by the president that basically says that any news organization that describes what's happening in Ukraine as a war or Russia's activity as an invasion is subject to imprisonment. And the terms of imprisonment are up to 15 years. Um, so this is a very um, severe new law, and it is in the process of changing the Russian media landscape and the international media landscape. And in fact, in further coverage, and the Moscow Times goes into some great detail about what's happening in the media landscape in Russia, but um, the, the Moscow Times further reports that um, the BBC is temporarily suspending the work of all of their journalists in country. Um, the Nobel Prize winning newspaper Novaya Gazeta um, has said that they'll stop reporting on the conflict, um, and you also have Deutsche Welle, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, Radio Svoboda, um, and a whole series of other news outlets who are temporarily suspending, altering, restricting, or moving their coverage outside of Russia. Uh, and of course, we're seeing uh, big organizations, international organizations like Bloomberg, for instance, pulling out CNN uh, and, and so on. That's right. It's not limited to European organizations. The American organizations are also altering their coverage in Russia or withdrawing from the country temporarily, at the very least. Um, there was a very interesting interview last night um, with one of the senior executives at the BBC who was saying that the, the corporation is doing what it can to actually move its coverage onto other sites that haven't been banned. And I think that there'll be a great amount of energy and creativity and, um, you know, efforts in the mainstream media to make their coverage available from Russia to the world. Um, but right now, those circumstances are incredibly difficult. I see that from Monday, the BBC is, in fact, going to start a TikTok channel. That's right. Um TikTok has not been uh, there. There doesn't appear to be a ban on TikTok, although Twitter um, is now inaccessible. Um, Facebook, I believe, is also inaccessible. But whatever media channels remain open in Russia and whatever remain a, a platform, an ongoing platform for content are um, channels that are available for broadcast, not only of cat videos, but also of very serious breaking news. Yeah. Um, Charles, we've talked about this many times, but there does seem to be this huge generational divide in Russia. And I wonder if uh, the people to whom this information would be useful are accessing it anyway. And the people who, who just believe the Russian line uh, continue to believe that and would do so whether or not that information was freely accessible. That's right. Much like you see in other countries around the world, there is a fairly sharp demographic divide in Russia. Um, and there is there tends to be an elderly audience that gets their news from television. And this is a, a sort of traditional source of news and the primary source of news from the Soviet period. Um, and, and this may be a generation that is less adaptable to mobile phones or to tablets or to other sort of news delivery mechanisms and what they're getting um, on their television screens is very, very, very carefully edited. Um, it is primarily the younger generation in Russia that, like all of us, is addicted to their mobile phones and, and are accustomed to 
gathering information from a wide variety of sources, both domestic and international, and having it in the palm of their hands. Um, that's the part that's going to become more difficult now. Absolutely. Now, of course, the, the, the big sort of news line this morning is this temporary ceasefire. Uh, as we heard from Anastasia, that's actually n- nobody knows for sure on the ground if, if that is in fact the case. Uh, what's The Guardian's reporting on this? That's right. So The Guardian takes us into news on the, the ceasefire, and it just says Russia declares partial ceasefire to allow residents of two Ukrainian cities to evacuate. And and this appears to be the only bit of agreement that came out of a resumption of quote-unquote peace talks between Russia uh, and Ukraine on the border with Belarus. There was a meeting yesterday um, that that failed to come to any sort of agreement on on actual hostilities, um, but it did agree to create at least a temporary and localized ceasefire, the Guardian tells us, to allow further evacuations out of Mariupol and Volnavaha um, and to allow humanitarian aid in. Um, the situation on the ground in those two cities is quite grim, and Mariupol is the center of enormous um, activity right now. Uh, and there are problems with water and electricity and food and hygiene. And, and so there should be, these things always take a little bit longer to activate than, than, once, than from the moment that they're announced, but there should be some influx of humanitarian assistance. And it should also be noted that bordering countries and countries even at a great distance from Ukraine are gathering um, substantial resources, um, both money and um, food and clothing and water, to deliver into those cities once the corridors are open. Yeah, and I see that there's a big shout out for medical supplies too, which are obviously desperately needed. That's right. So um, you'll find that typically in, in conflict, there are ways of getting medical supplies in um, through various medical charities and, and emergency uh, organizations, um, and that will probably be the case for Mariupol and Volnavaha. Um, the question is how long these corridors will stay open. Um, they were declared as temporary and they were declared as local, um, and we're not quite sure how long those will be available for. And it doesn't appear that there are. It doesn't appear that there are any other uh, ceasefires anywhere else in the country. Charles, we are going to come back to you in in a moment. We're, meanwhile, we're still trying uh, Andre Kirchhoff uh, in Ukraine. But right now, let's hear from Monocle's editor in chief, Andrew Tuck. Here's his weekend column. The narrative is clear: all Ukrainians are brave and fearless, and will defend their nation to the end. The overnight transformation of bus drivers, supermarket managers, builders into an armed home guard has been simply staggering to watch. And you can only imagine how many scriptwriters there are already clattering away at keyboards, working on various Zelensky action movies. Personally, I'd be shit scared. At lunch this week, I was asking people how they thought they would cope if London was switched for Kyiv. I'm a fun sandwich companion. Josh, our editor, kindly suggested that I would be a shoe-in for the communications unit. I wondered whether catering or laundry might be more my thing. When you start trying to superimpose yourself into what's happening in Ukraine, trying to imagine what it would be like, it can be very sobering. On top of this, try adding in protecting your kids, sick parents. Really, what would you do? Stick or run? Do you remember when you used to check the COVID charts in the newspaper every day and wonder if the world would ever get back to normal. Gosh, they were good times. On Thursday, we had a reception at Midori House for the launch of the Monocle Book of the Nordics, 
and we invited some of the region's key ambassadors to attend and speak on an informal panel for a few minutes about design, diplomacy, social democracy, ABBA even. Of course, the world had wobbled since we first invited them, and so the discussion soon headed to Ukraine. Not a single ABBA question got asked. The Swedish ambassador, Michaela Kumlin-Granit, said that she had seen one good thing. Any posturing over Brexit had vanished, and it was great to see how the EU and the UK were synchronised once again. Ah yes, when Brexit was what kept you awake at night. Iceland's ambassador, Stule Sigur Jonsson, told the audience what happened in 2006 as soon as the US naval air station closed down at Keflavik. Russia started sending military aircraft over the country, making clear their presence would be felt from here on in. Iceland is a founding member of NATO, but has no military of its own, and this week said it expects to see the return of more NATO traffic to the country. They might need to think about building some new barracks too. I bumped into a former Monocle intern, now a successful entrepreneur here in London. She's part Russian, part Ukrainian, and her parents are at home in Russia. We talked about life and business, and then the war. She said that her parents were on board with Putin's attack. Their belief was that nobody complained when Russians were killed in Donbass and were now overreacting when they took some action to defend their people. And she added, as they only watched the news in Russian, it was unlikely that anything would change their perspective. Finland's ambassador to the UK, Yuka Siokasari, told us that the country was seeing an uptick in young Russians crossing the border to Finland, keen to be out of their country if, say, martial law was imposed. A sign of dissent and exasperation, perhaps? We must be very wary of some of the rhetoric being bandied about regarding Russia. The push to isolate the country should not be used to demonise all Russians and its culture. I've seen the stories about bars pouring their vodka down the drain, which may look like an act of solidarity, but is a bit ugly and daft too. What next? Setting fire to your Penguin classic copy of Dostoevsky? Picketing productions of The Cherry Orchard? If you want to read in English what Russians are seeing on TV and in their newspapers, you should have a look at the website for the state-owned news agency, TASS. You feel like you're looking back at Earth from the moon, Russia, Egypt, Tunisia, awaiting Russian tourists is the sort of vibe they're after. Really, nothing much has changed, dear comrades. You just need to move your sun lounger to the other side of the med. And here is another risk that comes with isolation. How do people ever get to change their minds, be tested on their thoughts, if they don't meet people with opposing views? I get it, this is hardly the moment for banter at the beach bar, but we risk setting these attitudes in concrete returning to the entrenched ideological views of the past. I guess these links, these conversations, have to wait. Even Ambassador Kumlin Granit, who said that, given her career, she has to believe in the power of diplomacy, admitted that it was not a tool that could be wheeled out at this time. That will have to be something for the future, when it's clearer where this terrifying, insane, unjust war has taken us.
That's our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. Well, we're able to cross back to Ukraine now uh, to join Andrei Kirchhoff. He's one of Ukraine's most successful writers prior to his uh, writing career. He served as a prison warden during his military service and following that, a journalist. Uh, he's written a huge amount. Uh, his best-selling, Death and the Penguin, uh, is very well known here. Uh, Grey Bees details the turmoils in, in Ukraine's Donbass region through the eyes of a mild-mannered beekeeper. And Andrei is also the head of PEN Ukraine, the writer's human rights organisation. Andre, thank you very much for joining us. I was planning to talk to you about literature at this time, but judging by your tweets and obviously the ongoing situation there, I think that there are pos- possibly more pressing things that, that we need to discuss. Uh, are, you, are you safe and well? Oh, yes, yes. I'm safe and well with my wife and my two uh, sons uh, in the western Ukraine. Uh, where actually there are many uh, refugees, many cars with number plates from all around Ukraine, including Donetsk and Lugansk, which means that these people are twice refugees. First, they actually left uh, separatist territories to go into government-controlled uh, Kiev or Kharkiv, and now they are trying to go further west. You were born in Russia, but you moved to Ukraine as a small child. Uh, and in, you, in your book, Grabies, you go a lot into that sort of identity. And I see you're tweeting today about Kharkiv and how it's mostly a Russian-speaking city. Uh, but Russian speakers are, in fact, being killed there. Well, actually, most of people who are killed there, especially, I think almost all civilians are Russian speakers because on the border with Russia and in the south of Ukraine, I mean, the, the cities were russified. Kharkiv, in fact, until 1934, was a capital of Soviet Ukraine, and it was completely Ukrainian-speaking. But it doesn't matter. I mean, the language doesn't play any role here. Putin is using Russian language as a pretext and as an uh, instrument, blunt political instrument. Uh, he didn't manage to divide Ukrainians into Russian speakers and Ukrainian speakers. So, I mean, the soldiers are speaking both languages on the front lines, and the population speaks more than two languages in the street. You uh, have been tweeting about events in Gostomel. Uh, forgive my pronunciation. Yeah, Gostomel. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Gostomel is a suburb uh, near Kiev, and actually today uh, a family was trying to leave uh, Vorzel, which is next to Gostomel, uh, in a car, uh, and the machine gun from Russian tank uh, practically destroyed the car, killing uh, a woman and a teenage girl, uh, and wounding four other passengers, all civilians. Uh, Andre, as a as a writer, how how are you experiencing this crisis? Are you finding yourself going back to your your journalism roots? I, I don't write any fiction now. I mean, I do articles, I, I give interviews, I'm sharing the information. I'm in touch with our pen members, and we are trying to organize different events online, and we are trying to keep in touch with our members who are now on occupied territory, in occupied Melitopol, uh, in Kherson, etc. So we are very worried about them, but they, so far they are okay. I mean, from time to time they can send a message from Melitopol, but mobile lines and internet is absent in Kherson, so we don't know anything about what is happening there. Mm. As you say, you're the head of PEN Ukraine. That's the writer's human rights organisation. Um, I'm involved here with English PEN, and I know that PEN International checks in with you and your members a couple of times a day. I wonder how important the organisation is at times like this. Well, any NGO, any organization which has a net of uh, members in different cities, I mean, it's very important not only to get information what is happening everywhere in Ukraine, but all, also to be sure that uh, everybody is okay and trying to, I mean, uh, and trying to help uh, others. I mean, 
uh, I, I, separately from Penn. I mean, my, my son, for example, is now from yesterday evening, he's trying to organize exit from Kiev for some uh, of his and our friends. And uh, th there are problems. There is only one exit free to the south, but you cannot go directly to the south because this morning, actually, uh, Bilaya Tserkov, which is in Kyiv region, it's on the Odessa uh, highway, a city of probably 200 people was bombed with missiles. So, I mean, uh, uh, probably every hour uh, people should change their routes to, to be safe, to be able to reach west. And we're hearing these reports of a, of a temporary ceasefire. Uh, have you had any kind of confirmation of that? Well, apparently yeah, there is a ceasefire for exit uh, of civilian population from Mariupol. It's a big industrial city on, uh, on Azov Sea uh, in, in, Don in Donbass. Uh, but I, uh, many Ukrainians are afraid that actually Russian will agree or agree to this uh, exit only to use the Green Corridor to send more troops uh, while Ukrainian artillery will not be uh, working. Mm. Once people are in shelters, if they are going underground, are they safe there? Of course not. Of course not, actually. And many people are refusing to go to shelters. They are tired and they just become fatalists. I mean, like our friend in Kiev who, who said that just, uh, I mean, I will, no, will not go to shelter anymore. I will stay in my flat and it doesn't matter what happens. Andre, will you write about this experience when it's done? I'm writing now, I'm writing my diary, I'm writing articles and, we, and probably the articles I will also use in my diary. I mean, this experience should be available for everybody to understand Putin and today's Russia and today's behavior of majority of Russian writers and poets who published open letter of support for Putin and this aggression in Literaturnaya Gazeta, literary newspaper in Moscow two days ago. So those are writers who are openly supporting Putin? Yes, yes, including quite prominent ones. But there are writers who don't support Putin and support Ukraine. And, but, I mean, the, the names are not very... Uh, not many names, but, but it does include Vladimir Sorokin, Dmitry Bykov, Igor Irtenev, uh, Shenderovich, Boris Akunin, who lives now in, in, in London, and some other writers. But my, it's, it's a minority. Uh, Andre, thank you so much for, for talking to us. That's uh, Andre Kirkov there. Now, his book Grey Bees is published by Maclehurst Press. And in fact, we're going to broadcast a full interview with Andre, which was recorded in 2020 at 1400 London time, where he talks about uh, the identity of Ukrainians and Russians and what was going on in Zombas uh, 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 from, from uh, 2014. Uh, back to Charles Hecker now in the studio. Charles, we're still having a, a look through, uh, through the papers uh, and um, we just, um, I mean, every single paper has a huge amount of what's going on. Let's go to the New York Times now. That's right. I think it's important to focus on the geopolitical impact of the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And, and that is that this is something that will change geopolitics quite possibly forever um, and, and quite substantially and, and even faster than the typical evolution of, of, of the, the global geopolitics. And, and we're going to the New York Times and the headline says, Republicans sharpen their message on Ukraine. And this is a really interesting story about the domestic political impact between Democrats and Republicans and President Joe Biden on the positioning of the war in Ukraine. And so the Republicans and the Democrats have their own skirmishes to extinguish inside their own parties. Um, initially, there were a number of Republicans who were supporting 
President Putin and, and former President Trump called him a genius and said he was savvy. Um, others were saying that he was, you know, showing power and strength. And, and, and those voices have had to be reined in. And Vice President Mike Pence is trying to shut that down inside the Republican Party. He is, of course, a potential presidential candidate for the elections in 2024. Um, the Democrats are also a little bit split on the inside about what to do about oil and whether they should ban all imports or whether they should continue to import oil from Russia, um, knowing that the, the money that they pay goes back to the Russian government. Um, one of the thing that's, things that's interesting is that oil is becoming a flashpoint in the debate about sanctions and about um, you know, the economy in the United States, because, of course, like everywhere else, the United States is experiencing an extremely sharp increase in inflation. And that's a significant domestic political pressure in the run up to the midterm elections in November of this year. The irony is that, that the United States imports a tiny fraction of its oil from Russia. Uh, the United States gets most of its oil from Canada, from Mexico, from Saudi Arabia, from places other than Russia. But they've turned this issue into a domestic hand grenade, and everybody seems to be split on what to do about it. If you shut down imports from Russia, they're afraid that prices will go up even further. If you allow the imports to come in, you're supporting the Russian government. America's in a muddle. And so is Europe, which is still importing a huge amount of, of fuel from, from Russia. Well, imagine. I mean, this is a, this is a debate that's taking in the United States, taking place in the United States over a tiny fraction of imp of imports. Imagine what's happening exactly as you point out in places like Germany that imported more than fifty percent of its energy from Russia last year. Um, so. Germany has taken the steps and a lot of European countries are taking the steps to reduce their imports from Russia. Um, the problem is that energy markets right now are incredibly tight. And, and it's not like there's a lot of excess oil and gas sloshing around to be mopped up by people who want to change their import policy. Um, so there will be temporary pain. Prices will continue to go up. Um, Brent oil is forecast to hit $130 a barrel in the near future. And that's, you know, we haven't had prices like that since I honestly can't remember. And so it, it's negotiating this energy transition, which, by the way, is supposed to be taking place against the backdrop of moving towards renewables. Mm. Um, so here we are trying to sort of sort out our hydrocarbon policy when we were basically supposed to be moving away from hydrocarbons in the first place. Mm. And of course, what it also does is put OPEC and Saudi Arabia very much in the driving seat. That's right. So there's pressure on OPEC and there's pressure on other producers to you know really open the taps. Um, that hasn't happened so far. Um, and of course, Russia's not in OPEC and Russia usually coordinates with OPEC, but now, uh, well, exports from Russia are going to be problematic for the immediate future, but um, there doesn't seem to be this sort of global opening of the tap. Um, and that's why we have this inflationary pressure and, and why our energy bills are going up. Mm. Uh, Charles, we've, we've, we've got to go now. I'm sort of trying to find a, a note of hope to, to end the program on, but it's very difficult. So there is a small element of hope, and that is that apparently the United States and Russia have opened up a new hotline. Um, and it's functional and it's working and both parties pick up the phone when it rings. Um, and it is a signal that diplomacy does carry on. It carries on at very high levels. Um, there are always, in addition to these high-level conversations, there are always back channels. Uh, and we have to hope that that, that that phone is pretty busy with diplomatic conversations back and forth. Charles Hecker, thank you very much indeed. And that's all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to our studio engineer, Nora Hull, and our producer, Marcus Hippie. I'm Georgina Godwin, and Monocle on Saturday returns at the same time next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.